through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, this morning we'll be wrapping up our series on this wonderful letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, so we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 11, and we'll read through then uh, to the end of the chapter, looking at verses 17 and 18, and then doing a uh, sort of review and summary of the book uh, as well this morning. Galatians chapter 6, let's begin at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's ask one more time the Lord to bless his word. Now, Lord Jesus, we come to this, your uh, inspired scripture, uh, though you penned from the words of your ordained, uh, from the, uh, written by the pen of your ordained servant, the Apostle Paul. And I thank you, Lord, that your spirit is present with us so that we might understand the things that um, we read here. I pray, Lord, you'd open our hearts and minds that we would see the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as, I, as I've said, and as you can clearly see, uh, there's no more Galatians left after uh, this morning. We've come uh, to the end. Uh, and uh, we're kind of continuing a theme that we started last week, or that we were talking about last week. Last week, if you remember, we asked the question, what is it that makes Christianity Christianity? What is it that, that defines uh, Christianity and that to leave off um, that definition would, would mean you're long, no longer practicing the Christian faith? And we talked about the rules, uh, that, that Christianity has uh, certain rules. And last week we mentioned two of them that Paul lists here in, in verses 11 through 16. Uh, that is an embrace of the offense of the cross of Jesus Christ and the necessity of a new creation. That Christians, at the, at the core of the faith, <clears throat> uh, Christians are people who have welcomed uh, the truth of the cross humbling themselves under the truth of the cross, gladly laying hold of the offense of the cross in a proud world, and are people who have experienced the Holy Spirit making them a new creation. And this morning, as I said, we want to kind of continue that theme, but maybe broadening the scope a little and asking, what are the essential principles then of the Christian religion? If those two things are, are essential for the experience of the Christian faith, what are the uh, essential principles of the religion as, as a whole? And we're going to look at two prominent themes this morning as they're uh, re referenced in our text and uh, revealed throughout the letter. We'll be looking at different texts through the book of Galatians. I have to say that um, I owe a great deal to John Stott's 
commentary. If there's one commentary I'd recommend for you to, 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 uh, to pick up on the book of Galatians, it would be Stott's uh, The Message of Galatians. It's, uh, it's, it's incredibly clear. It's not too long. It'd be a great devotional. Uh, it would also be a wonderful Bible study, small group Bible study. And so I just commend that to you. I found myself uh, benefiting a great deal from uh, that commentary. Well, uh, Stott ends his commentary with a summary of some of the main issues that Paul addresses in his letter. And this morning we're going to deal with two of them. And the two issues are the question of authority. Who gets to speak for Jesus? Who gets to define the terms? So first the question of authority. And then secondly, the question of salvation. What is the true and pure gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Those are the essential principles of the Christian religion. Those are answered, the questions that are um, needed to be faced in every generation. Uh, and whenever the church strays from those essential principles, the consequences are devastating. But wherever you see a church thriving in spiritual health and bearing fruit to the glory of God, where there's spiritual power at work, you will find a church that is intentionally adhering to these principles, the authority of the question of authority and the issue of salvation. Well, let's begin then with the question of authority. Uh, in, in, in many ways, it's fundamental to the letter as a whole. You see, the, the core issue in some ways in the Galatian controversy was who gets to speak for God? Uh, Paul had planted and founded these churches uh, as he preached the gospel the gospel that had been delivered to him by Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul speaks of his uh, method. He said, I delivered unto you that which I also received. He was just passing it along. That which I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And on the third day, he was raised again from the dead. That's a message that Paul had received from Christ himself. And uh, that was Paul's method. Well, some men came up, as we've noted, from Jerusalem with a different message and claiming a different authority. They were claiming that they had the support, the backing, the authority of the leaders in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And so the question for the Galatians was, well, who do we believe? Which one do we follow? John Stott, again, lays out the, the dilemma they faced. He says, both teachers parties seem to have good credentials. Both were holy, godly, upright, and intelligent men. Both were plausible, winsome, and dogmatic. Which were they to choose? And that's why, if you remember, Paul begins his letter by dealing then with the issue of apostolic authority. He starts out by explaining that uh, when he was called, he did not go to Jerusalem to get his credentials. He went away uh, into the wilderness. He went to Arabia, and then he went to Damascus, and he was there for a long time. And when he went to Jerusalem, it wasn't to get their, their stamp of approval. It was just to report what God was doing through him. Paul wanted to make it very clear that he did not get his authority from anyone other than Jesus Christ. And that's why he comes back to the issue uh, as he concludes his letter in verse 17 of chapter 6. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now that is not meant to be a threat, but it's meant to make a point. 
and to make it very strongly. And the point is, Paul is saying, listen to what I'm telling you. Paul needs to be listened to. He needs to be submitted to. Why? Well, he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Uh, there's some debate about this, but I think the, the, the most clear explanation is that Paul's referring to the physical scars in his body due to the persecution that he endured as he carried out the calling of proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Paul references those scars or the, the things that caused them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 25 through 27. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. That's going to leave a mark. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journey, uh, journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That was his calling. We know that because uh, when Paul uh, was called into ministry, very suddenly and unexpectedly, as you remember, uh, as he was making his way to Damascus uh, to persecute the church, Jesus Christ shows up. And Paul, in a moment, has his world turned upside down, and he ends up unable to see, uh, sitting in a, a, a solitary room somewhere in Damascus, and the Spirit comes to a man named Ananias, a holy uh, a, a member of the church, a saint there, and, and says, Ananias, you need to go and lay your hands on a Saul so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias is a little nervous. Uh, this is the one who has the authority and, and has been casting us into prison. He's out to destroy the church. <clears throat> But, uh, but the Spirit tells him he must go, he, to go, and so he does. And this is what the Lord says to Ananias. Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was Paul's calling, to go, proclaim the gospel, and suffer for the sake of Christ's name. And, and that's exactly what he did. Paul went and he preached Christ everywhere he went. Doesn't matter if he was sitting on a, uh, standing on the, 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 uh, the hill there in Athens. Doesn't matter if he was in some, uh, some home and uh, some tucked away little, little town no one heard of. Or maybe he was at the river bank in the Philippi uh, talking to the ladies who had gathered there. Everywhere Paul went, Paul preached the gospel and he suffered for it. And so he's, re he's reminding the Galatian believers of his ministry by referencing his scars. You see, there's two things he's accomplishing by this reference. On the, on the one hand, he's distinguishing himself from the false teachers. If you would observe um, the, the, the bodies of the, of the false teachers and the bodies of the apostle Paul, you'd notice one is marked up like crazy, and the others have no marks at all. Remember the false teachers last week are doing what they're doing in order to avoid persecution. It's, that's part of their method. What's it going to take to make this message palatable? To make it so that people don't get so upset with us? What's it going to take to avoid persecution? That was their method. And so Paul is clearly distinguishing himself from these false teachers. Uh, they don't have any scars. But secondly, he is very... Uh, powerfully manifesting, uh, proving 
the reality of his apostolic authority. And that's why he says, let no one trouble me. It's, it's a little bit like don't mess with me. It has an edge to it. Stop. Remember these false teachers have been troubling the church. Paul says, don't be troubling with the church and don't trouble with me. Don't dismiss what I'm telling you. Now that's a, that's a strong thing to say, but Paul says it because he's convinced of his apostolic authority. That's an important reminder for the church today, for uh, the church in every age, but in ours as well, and, and because we are faced with exactly the same issue that the churches in Galatia were facing. There are conflicting gospel messages out there, and, and each teacher is claiming that his is the authentic gospel. Joel Osteen will promise you that he's just telling you what Jesus intends. Benny Hinn will do the same. Rob Bell will do the same. Ibrahim Kendi will, will all, uh, they'll all say the same thing, and yet they all have a different gospel. They all have a different um, understanding of the cross. So Osteen will tell you that Jesus died to make you, uh, make you happy to make you uh, reach your full potential. Benny Hinn will tell you that Jesus died to make you rich. Rob Bell will tell you that Jesus died to show how much God hates violence. Kendi will say that Jesus died as the unfortunate result of being a social revolutionary. These are all bright, charismatic, convincing, winsome people. They can all quote scholars. They can appeal to some historic tradition. So how do you know which one to believe? It's extremely important question. How do you know which teacher to follow? Well, Paul tells us, follow the apostle. Follow the apostle, the one who has been ordained by Jesus Christ as the official messenger of the gospel. And that, that's the critical issue, difference, isn't it, between Paul and the Judaizers? It's not just that they're wrong, it's that they're unauthorized. You see, uh, one of these parties is a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. The other one isn't. Which is why Paul is, is able to say with, with all humility and yet incredible boldness in, in chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Why? Because the one they preached to them was the official, um, sanctioned by Jesus, gospel message. And that's why Paul fully expected the Galatian believers to fall in line with his teaching. He expected them to reject the teaching of the Judaizers. Chapter 5, verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Now again, that, that could sound incredibly arrogant. I have confidence in the Lord. You'll take no other view than mine. The only allowable view. There is no pluralism here. It's not you, you have your truth and I have my truth. I am confident you'll take no other view than mine. Why? Because his view was the authorized view. His view had been sanctioned, given by Jesus Christ, and Paul had been appointed by Jesus Christ to preach it. And we have to remember that 
in the world today as there are so many voices and so many variations of the Gospels and all the, all the teachers are winsome and charismatic and they're all earnest. Well, who shall we believe? The answer is the same as it has always been. We need to believe the Apostle, the one that Christ has authorized as his official messengers. Remember, when Jesus sent them out, he said, whoever rejects you, rejects me. The, the apostles are the foundation of the church. And if you go building on something other than that foundation, whatever you're building, it is not the church of Jesus Christ. It cannot be the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't consider Mormons to be a church of Jesus Christ. Because they don't adhere to the, adhere to the apostles. John Stott says this, The teaching of the apostles, now permanently preserved in the New Testament, is to regulate the beliefs and practices of the church in every generation. The beliefs and the practices of the church of Jesus Christ in every generation is to be regulated by the teaching of the apostles as it is permanently preserved in the New Testament. That means that if a teaching doesn't agree with Paul, then it doesn't agree with Jesus. And if it doesn't agree with Jesus, it does not belong in the church. Full stop. It doesn't belong in the church. Any message that fails the apostolic test must be rejected as a false gospel. And so one of the things I think is just so critical for us to learn is how to discern a great question to ask whenever you hear someone who professes to be a Christian teaching something that doesn't quite sound right, just ask yourself the question, is that what Paul sounds like? Is that how Paul would say it? Is that what Paul emphasizes? Is that where Paul's passion lies? I remember when the emergent church was first coming on the scene, and I'm just scratching my head, and I said, these guys are really bright, and they're really earnest, but... It doesn't sound like Paul. It just doesn't sound like the way he talks. It doesn't emphasize the, thing that he, the things that he emphasizes. Same with Joel Osteen. You can't get a more earnest man. It, just, it doesn't sound like Paul. And we have to bring that all the way through. It doesn't, it doesn't matter today if you're wearing a MAGA hat or a BLM t-shirt. Does the message sound like the Apostle Paul? Does it emphasize what he emphasizes? Does it go where he goes? Does it trust in what he trusts? Does it preach what he preaches? Are the proposals being suggested, the proposals that Paul suggests? Or is it something different? We have to be discerning. Or we're going to lose the true gospel. Well, that brings us to the question, what is the pure gospel? Well, that's the question of salvation. <clears throat> Verse 18, Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. That's not just a token word of closing. The issue of grace is at the very heart of the letter. We're saved by grace alone, is Paul's message. We're saved by God's help plus human merit and keeping the law. That's the Judaizer message. And Paul clearly distinguishes that they are two different messages. He, he says right at the beginning, the first sentence of the body of the letter is verse 6 of chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's a different gospel. 
God had called them through Paul's message into the grace of Jesus Christ into a free righteousness given to them, not because of anything they had done, but merely by the goodness of God and through the death of Christ. And now they're abandoning it. The Judaizer message is not a message of grace. It's a message of merit. It's a message of human effort, a message that uh, you gain your righteousness by keeping the Mosaic law. And that's the fundamental difference between Paul's teaching and theirs. And it's not a little difference. This This isn't something that, you know, Good people can disagree about and still be brothers. It's a different gospel. And Paul makes clear, for instance, in chapter 2, 21, that if the Judaizers are right, then grace is nullified and Jesus died for nothing. 2, 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God as they do. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, Imagine that. If the Judaizers are right, then God sent his own son in the likeness of man to bear the sin of man, to suffer the wrath of God in our place. And he went and he died on that cross. And it was all a huge mistake. It was for absolutely nothing. When Jesus ascended to the Father, an angel would come along and say, Jesus, I was so kind of you, but I'm sorry to tell you. It's not how it works. They have to earn it. I mean, it's just ludicrous to think about, and yet it is offensive to think about. It's blasphemous to think about. And yet that's exactly what the Judaizers are saying. And it's exactly what anyone says when they try to tell you that you need to believe in Jesus and do X in order to be a true Christian, in order to be really right with God. Well, Paul says, uh, the whole gospel stands or falls on this. Are we made righteous, forever righteous and fully righteous before God by a free gift of divine grace purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, or do we gain righteousness by human merit and human effort? Another way of asking the question is, what did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross. What was he actually doing there? Paul answers that question several different ways throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says that Jesus was giving himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He was accomplishing something. He was rescuing us from this present evil age, from its principalities, its powers, from its, its pollution, from its penalty. We're rescued. That's what Jesus was doing for us. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that he was loving us. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Paul thought of the cross, Paul was overwhelmed with the love of God, the love of Christ to him in the cross. What was loving about it? Why did the cross feel like love to the Apostle Paul? Well, the answer could be found in chapter 3.13, where Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That Christ's death was the necessary price that needed to be paid in order to free us from the curse 
of the law. You see, the great crisis of humanity, no matter what you read in the, in the newspapers, you hear on, uh, on, through your television or read on your blogs, whatever, the great crisis of humanity is that in Adam's fall, every man, woman, and child is under the wrath of God and the curse of the law. That's the crisis of humanity. The law of God says, the soul that sins shall surely die. And he meant it. He meant it. And since every man, woman, and child that you meet is guilty of sin in truth, that sentence hangs over them, everyone. They will die eternally in hell unless Jesus intervenes. Unless Jesus intervenes. I know the world thinks that's offensive. I know that there are many professing Christians who scoff at that theology. They cannot imagine that God would hold sinners accountable in such a dreadful way, right? Love wins. Yes, love does win, but not that way. You see, no one spoke more frequently or clearly about the reality of divine judgment in hell than Jesus. The whole world lies under the curse of the law. That's the fact. And it is precisely, you see, that fact that made the cross for Paul an overwhelming experience of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Remember who he was. He was an angry, vicious, arrogant blasphemer of God. That's who he was. He reeked of self-righteousness persecuting the precious blood-bought church of Jesus Christ and having the audacity to think that he was pleasing God in doing so. And not just persecuting the church of Jesus, but Jesus himself. Remember what Jesus said to him when he met him, when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, if any man deserved to be cursed and sent into the deepest, blackest abyss of hell, it was this man, Paul. But Jesus, precisely the Jesus whom he was persecuting, loved him and gave himself for him. That Jesus loved Paul, Saul, the wretch, and willingly endured the hell that Saul deserved in order to redeem him, to purchase him back from the curse, and to, and to make him the insolent blasphemer and idolater, make him into a child of God. Chapter 4, 4, he redeemed those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Can you imagine how incredible that must have seemed to the apostle? How could it possibly be? Now having seen his sin in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ, how could it possibly be that, that this holy, precious, beautiful, righteous God would want him, Saul, the blasphemer and idolater, to be a child, a son, and to pay such a price to accomplish it? 
No wonder, you see, the cross seemed to Paul to be the greatest imaginable revelation of the infinite love and grace of God. My friends, is that what the cross means to you? Do you understand the cross that way? Do you, do, you, do you sense the astounding kindness and grace and compassion and love of God for you in the death of his son? Does the cross feel like the infinite love of Jesus for you? Do, you? do you get the words of the song, amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see... This, this gospel is not only the true gospel, but it's, it's the only gospel that, that can break a hardened sinner's heart with nothing but the power of sovereign love and grace. You see, it's only a gospel of grace. Free, unmerited, unlimited grace purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the only thing that can convince a, a hardened sinner to repent. It's the only thing that can, can bend his knees. It's at the same time the only thing that can convince a sin-weary saint that, that you are truly, sincerely, deeply, and eternally loved. This is how God manifested his love among us. He sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And to whatever degree we, we shade or bend or blunt that note of grace, to whatever, whatever degree we, we trust in our merit to make us right with God, to that degree we will fail to experience the incredible beauty of God's love for us in the cross. It's only, friends, when we come like Paul came full of sin, having nothing of our own, freely acknowledging that we deserve, we deserve nothing but judgment, it's only then that we actually will experience the infinite love of Jesus Christ for us, the sinner, as he bore our curse and received the wrath due to us for our sin so that we could be adopted as his forever children and all by grace. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and that's the true gospel that Paul preached. It's a gospel of grace. That's the message. It's the only message that can transform lives and change the world. Every other message is a lie. And so as we close this series, it's fitting that we close with Paul's benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be real. Not just words that we say, a theology we believe, but may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the wonder of that grace, the grace of God, not only be intellectually grasped, but experienced inside, in your heart, where you live. So that, that the grace of Jesus Christ then it has the power in your life to strengthen you and to humble you. It has the power in your life to transform you. It has the power in your life to uphold you, to keep you in times of trial to comfort you in times of grief. That this, this reality of the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ would be our life, our joy, our health, our peace for the glory of God and for the joy of the church. Amen.
Oh God, amazing love, how can it be that you should die for, for me? A rebel, self-righteous, self-reliant, perverse, proud. Father, I, I thank you for the gospel and I thank you for your messengers, for Paul, the apostles. And I thank you for the scripture where their, their words have been put down as permanent testimony of the truth of the gospel. Father, there's so much confusion in the church today. And we need, Lord, again, to hear their message. And we need to hear the gospel of grace as the power of God unto salvation, the power of God to to transformation, the power of God that's actually able to save us and to save us to the uttermost and to fill our life with joy and peace. And the power that's able to change our, our world, our community, our neighborhood, our country. As men and women are made new creations by the power of God. And live with a new power and for a new purpose. For the glory of God. And so, oh God, please be merciful to us. And, and in your grace, help us to know these things. To grasp them in truth. To never let them go. And Lord, I pray that you would be by your spirit ministering this grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and loves us still and will love us and protect and preserve us through his apostolic message, through this gospel, until we see him face to face. May that day come soon. Amen. Let's respond by, uh, we're going to stand and sing the song that was, uh, uh, we heard as a prelude, the song just magnifying the grace of God for us. Let's stand together and sing.
God's people said.